say hello, we want to see you smile, we'd like to sing some good old songs for you. We're here to be with you for a little while, to sing Baba Shop in the English style. I, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner that in the English style. Britain had come a long way in the 15 years since Harry Danzer, the founding father of British Barbershop, had seen the music man in New York with his family and discovered a passion he just had to share. That story was told in our last Harmony UK podcast. Hello, I'm John Beasley, and in this, our 27th edition, we'll pick up that story in 1974. It's 10 years since Harry founded Britain's first chorus, the Crawley Chordsman. That's them, by the way, uh, singing their London medley. After a lot of hard work, a handful of other choruses had also been formed and a first national gathering had been held. The time for something more formal had arrived. But the winter of 1973-74 was by no means the most auspicious moment to start anything new, let alone a barbershop association. The government and the mine workers' union were at loggerheads. There was industrial strife. There were frequent power cuts as coal stocks dwindled at the power stations. The Prime Minister, Ted Heath, had declared a state of emergency. We are limiting the use of electricity by almost all factories, shops and offices to three days a week. I think it's evening time. You get a bit nervous, especially being that you're not very good health, you know, and it uh, gets dark and that, and you look outside and it's pitch dark. You've got no telly or nothing like that on, you know, because all the lot goes off together, you see. Do you feel the cold? I do. I, I do. don't, but he do. It's his illness, you see, it makes him feel the cold. Well, I, I very, if I've been sitting in the chair and it goes off, I go to bed, don't I? To keep warm. As those clips from a BBC Time Shift documentary show, and you can watch it on YouTube, by the way, uh, the country was desperately in need of a lift, and British barbershoppers thought that they'd found something from across the Atlantic which could help. By then, Pete Powell from Reading had been singing for five years with a small group called the Minor Chords. We got the um, example from the States where there were many hundreds of courses and quartets and thousands, tens of thousands of barbershoppers in existence over there. So we thought, well, why can't we become like one of the districts in the States? There were clubs in uh, Crawley, of course, we knew about. There was us in Reading. There was a group going in Newcastle, also Brighton. And I believe something was going on in Bournemouth, although they didn't join in the formation, the group that formed Babs. I think the person who was involved with that group had found something better to do on the day that we had our very first meeting. I uh, heard he went to watch the rugby at Twickenham, is that right? <laughs> that, that's very well it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he'd rather do that than come in February 74 to our first meeting that we had at a hotel near Heathrow Airport where representatives of those four clubs that I've mentioned, Crawley, Reading, Newcastle and Brighton met. 
The date chosen for that inaugural meeting was Saturday, February the 16th, 1974. Another member of the Minor Chords, Jerry Holland, who flew passenger jets from Heathrow Airport, was among the nine men who formally convened to get the new organisation off the ground. I booked the room <laughs> in the Skyways Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I booked the room. I, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, that's how it all started there, of course, and we had a, a completely blue sky thing, you know, blank sheet, and off we went. So we said, right, what are the rules going to be, <laughs> sort of thing, and that's how we started, yeah. That must have been quite a long discussion about what are the rules going to be, particularly if you start from scratch. People must have different ideas. It wasn't too bad, actually. I don't remember. There were no sticking points. There was nobody that said, well, I don't like that, you know. It, 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 and let's face it, we didn't have that many rules. I mean, we had enough... When we started, we had enough rules to go on a, on a, a half A5 uh, directory on one page. So it wasn't very big. There weren't that many rules. The other thing I'd imagine you were pretty short of was money, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I remember the first meeting we had, um, David Loganwood was the treasurer, and we had 32 quid, I think it was, in the, in the treasury, <laughs> in the kitty. And that was money that we just put our hands in our pockets and plonked on the table and said, well, let's start it with that <laughs> sort of thing. But what should this new British barbershop organisation be called? Bob Walker of the Crawley Courtsman was also at that first meeting. We didn't really know what to call it. There had been a suggestion it should be called ABC, which is quite catchy, which was the Association of British Clubs or the Association of Barbershop Clubs. But in fact, the, na the name... Uh, Babs, which was in those days, of course, the British Association of Barb. Let me get this right: the British Association of Barber Shoppers. We were called the British Association of Barber Shoppers, and that was where Babs came from. And that was changed a few years later to Barber Shop Singers because they felt that people might look at this and think we were barbers, which I believe actually did happen. One of our early conventions, a gentleman turned up and he'd come quite a long way and he was a barber. And he was very disappointed that this was nothing to do with haircutting at all. But uh, I, I, I believe that that's actually true. And I think he stayed on and actually enjoyed the convention. An inaugural convention was, of course, at the top of the to-do list for the brand-new British Association of Barbershoppers. But though they looked to North American Barbershop and the clunkily named Speb Scusa for their inspiration, they'd already diverged from the American model in one very important respect. Dr Liz Garnett is a musicologist, a choral clinician and a close harmony arranger, and she's the author of the book The British Barbershopper. What they imported when they instituted it in this country was was kind of a social structure. Because I think one of his early early bits of advice that dance was given from the, the BHS was if you want, or Spebs, as it was then, was that if you want to get people involved, start a chorus. The chorus is kind of the place where you get all the people together and then you want to sing a quartet, you've got people who are trained up and ready and some people want to sing a quartet. But if you, want, if you want to get this going, go for choruses, was the advice he was given. And so unlike the American society, we started off as a choral organisation with quartets, where they started off as, as, as a quartet organisation uh, with gang sings and then they didn't really have formal choruses until the 1950s. As we heard in the last Harmony UK podcast, that advice to Harry Dancer from his friend Canadian barber shopper George Shields led to the formation of the Crawley Cordsman, and their success persuaded Speb Scusa that the rest of Britain had potential too. 
1971, their chief executive had flown to Britain to join Harry Dancer and a group of homegrown enthusiasts for a series of public meetings around the country. And in the spring of 1974, the Americans were back. This time with a 100-man chorus and a number of quartets. Bob Crawley. This gentleman called Barry Best, who was the director of the society at the time, he very kindly came over to Britain in, I think it was 1974, and um, he set up some meetings in large towns around the country, and this was all paid for by the society, and they put advertisements in the local press saying anyone who's interested in singing, come along to this meeting and we'll, you, you, may, you may be able to form a club and get some singing done. And Barry was a great help to us at that time, and that started spreading it around. The impressively large group also staged a series of concerts in major towns and cities. Pete Powell attended one of them at Reading Town Hall. We thought it was brilliant, of course, because it was the first time we'd heard a large chorus. So, I mean, this would be the first time the audience would have heard a hundred-man chorus. Most of us were a bit sceptical about whether we could actually get enough of an audience together, but Jerry Holland, I think, worked his magic, and we did have a pretty full audience and of course, as a result of that, at that concert, we appealed for men to come and join us on whatever date it was soon after the concert. And we had 20 or so, you know, new people come. Liz Garnett believes that the tour provided a distinct boost to the fortunes of the newly formed British barbershop movement as it prepared for its first full-scale weekend convention the following July. I suspect it was really quite significant in the kind of the organisational skills and the experience they brought to it, but also the profile it gave. There was quite a lot of media coverage that might have been less easy to get hold of. You know, you need that kind of that, 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 that hook. And where they could, the barbershop evangelist from Spebscusa would offer help and advice, sometimes even a prod, to make sure that they left behind a new barbershop club. Jerry Holland. Probably uh, Pete Powell probably told you this guy, Sam Kennedy, was a, was a field officer for, as it was then, the society. And uh, <clears throat> he came to Reading and uh, he came to one of our meetings and he said, you know, you guys should really get yourselves, you should form yourselves into a proper chapter. <laughs> and, uh, and he pointed to me, he said, you can be chairman. And he pointed to Pete Powell and he said, you can be the chorus director. How's that? So we said, all right, we'll start that way. And so July rolled round and with it the first British Barbershop Convention. The venue was Newcastle University. The organisers were the Tyneside Club, easily the biggest in the country. That's their male chorus singing now. And by July 1974, Tyneside also had a thriving ladies' chorus. 
Pete Powell recalls that from the start, conventions had a flavour which was to become familiar to barbershoppers down the generations. Well, we had shows, of course, and then we would have had afterglows, I'm sure, just like we do now. We stayed in, in the university accommodation, so we had the concert hall available to us where we put on the shows, and um, we stayed in the accommodation. And that happened at quite a few of the early conventions where we, we stayed on site. So there was obviously no problems about uh, drinking to the early hours because uh, you just had to walk home in as, in as straight a line as you could. With just a handful of clubs, there was as yet no chorus competition. That would have to wait until Brighton in 1975. In any case, the British Association as yet had no trained barbershop judges. But there was a keenly fought quartet contest with 13 competitors. Now you can bring Po, she's a darn nice girl, but don't, don't bring Lulu. You can bring Rose with a turned up nose, but don't bring Lulu. Lulu always wants to do what we boys don't want her to. When she her stuff around. You're listening to a couple of the competing quartets now. These are the Fortunaires, and this, the Five Bridge Four. Way down in Dixieland, I know a music man plays his accordion night and day. Won't play a melody, only plays harmony. That's why they all say he just plays chords that make you feel grand. Bob Walker sang with another of those first competing quartets, the Ringleaders. Oh, it was it was hilarious convention. It was extremely well run. I remember that. And of course, I have a special affection for it since I was in the winning quartet. But what was interesting from a judging point of view was, just like the original... Uh, society contests way back in the late 30s, they didn't have any trained judges. They used local dignitaries to judge. And we were in the same position in 1974. Um, we had no, no trained judges. We didn't have enough money to bring over American judges. But there was a fine a comedy quartet who were very good singers called the Harmony Hounds. And they came to our convention just to come and enjoy the convention. And we recruited them to judge. There were five judging categories in those days. And we recruited them to judge four of them. And there was one certified judge from the society, an older gentleman called Merle Clayton, who was a certified judge in the arrangement category, which uh, for those uh, recently in barbershop kind of has morphed over many decades into what is now the music category. But it was in those days the arrangement category. So he judged arrangement. And um, the Harmony Hounds judged the others. There seems to be a new fad sweeping the nation today, sweeping the world. For that matter, we hear reports from all over the world. I refer, of course, to the fad of streaking. It seems now that streaking has been imported to England from America. As a matter of fact, we are here covering the grand opening of the all-new Sainsbury supermarket in downtown Tyneside. Well, there seems to have been some disturbance. Pardon me, sir, did you see what happened? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I was standing over there by the Demoters. <laughs> and there he come, running through them pole beans, past the fruits and vegetables, naked as a jaybird. 
And I hollered over to where Ethel was standing. I said, don't look, Ethel. <laughs> but I was too late. She'd already been incensed. Oh. <laughs> Here he comes. There he goes. And he ain't wearing no clothes. Oh, yes, they call him the street. Look at that. You do have to admire the way that the Harmony Hounds kept their repertoire bang up to date, as well, of course, as their impeccable English pronunciation of tomatoes. This is their take on Ray Stevens' The Streak, a novelty song which had been in the top 40 only a few weeks before the convention. Once again, this is your action news reporter. And we're here at the corner of Petrol Station where there seems to have been some disturbance. Pardon me, sir. Did you see what happened? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I was in here getting my tires checked, and he just appeared out of the traffic there, coming a streaking around the grease rack, didn't have on nothing but a smile. <laughs> I looked in there where Ethel was getting herself a cold drink, and I hollered, Don't look, Ethel! But it was too late. She'd already been mooned. Flashed her right in front of the shock absorbers. The quartet would almost certainly have needed a keen sense of humor to cope with their tasks as impromptu judges on that first quartet contest. Pete Powell's newly formed club in Reading provided quite a number of the contestants. We entered three quartets, six of us formed three quartets. Each one of us appeared in two quartets. And at the time, you couldn't do that in the society. The, the society judges were surprised when they looked up and they saw the same people coming um, on stage repeatedly. So the rules were pretty much sort of made up as they went along almost. Yeah, the... Oh, here we are. The winners, the ringleaders, who you've probably heard of, which included Bob Walker. Harm Accuracy, they scored nine points. Uh, balance and blend seven points, stage presence eight points, and arrangement seven points. So they were pretty much made up on the spot, and they probably did the correct decision. The ringleaders from Crawley were top. The Beckford brothers from Crawley were second. The Fibridge four from Tyneside were third. They went on to win later on. There was a boy from Arkansas who wouldn't listen to his ma when she told him he'd have to go to school. He'd take a walk in the afternoon, just follow him, and pretty soon you'd find him at the local auction barn. He'd stand and listen carefully, and pretty soon he began to see how the auctioneer could talk so rapidly. Oh me, oh my, it's do or die, I gotta learn that auction cry, gotta make my mark and be an auctioneer. There they are, Bab's first ever gold medal winning quartet, the ringleaders with the song The Auctioneer. An appropriate choice given that the rules for future Bab's conventions were up for grabs. As Bob Walker recalls, it was an area where the winning quartet and the organisers didn't quite see eye to eye. Because they were familiar with sporting events, they wanted the ringleaders who had won the quartet contest to compete again so that new quartets could beat them. 
And we wanted to go with the American rule, which is that once a quartet has won, it's won forever. And if you want to compete again, you have to form a different quartet with no more than two from your original quartet. So we, and I have to, I'm afraid, uh, take the opprobrium for this, we did a little blackmail job, or should I say a little persuasive job, on Babs, and we said, look, if you pass this rule that once you've won, you've won, and the quartet retires from your national competition, I will guarantee that we will train some judges, and in a year's time we'll put our own trained judges down there in the pit. And that is indeed what we did. And we worked very hard. We had two or three meetings, which we called seminars, and they still are called that now, judging seminars. And we got some good, talented people, and we trained them up. And sure enough, um, the second convention in 1975, which was down in Brighton at the Ocean Hotel, we put our own panel of judges up. And of course, our guild of judges has progressed from there. And so that first ever convention of the British Association of Barbershoppers paved the way for contests to come. And there was another notable disagreement around arrangements for that first convention, which became the focus of a feature on primetime TV. The theme to BBC One's That's Life, a show whose mix of hard-hitting consumer affairs, heartwarming personal stories and humour, including skateboarding dogs and a whole allotment full of amusingly shaped vegetables, had made it a ratings winner. The programme and its presenter Esther Ranson specialised in championing hard-pressed viewers against the injustices inflicted by big business and faceless government bureaucracy. And that summer they went into bat for British Barbershop, and more specifically for Jerry Holland in a dispute with British Rail. By that time, we'd got several clubs all around the country, obviously, and we were getting geared up to go to um, Newcastle, and I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea if we hired ourselves a train and went up the spine of England, because we could, we could start off somewhere like Bournemouth and pick up all the barbershoppers on the way, I'm sure they can route, if we hire the whole train, we could, we could go all the way out to uh, Newcastle with, with this train picking up barbershoppers all the way along the way. And we could we could route it so that we can you know to, obviously for convenient pickup points. And I contacted the guy in uh, British Rail, and he said, which in those days was BR, and he said, yes, great, super charter, yeah, we can do that, blah blah, this that and the other. Anyway, around about I don't know a couple of weeks before the the whole thing kicked off. I phoned this guy to check in and he said, it's going to be quite difficult actually to find you a train and we might not be able to do it. I said, what? We've got all these guys, we've got, I don't know how many hundred people all ready to come on this blessed train and you want to cancel it. So I slammed the phone down and it was Pete said to me, why don't you phone Esther Ransom and see if she can get it done? So that's how we got on TV. And so we were the first British barbershoppers on television and Esther Ransom thought we were brilliant. So I'm going to tell you now about a letter we got this week from Mr. Jerry Holland. Mr. Holland is the president of a barbershop sextet called the Minor Cause. Hello. 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 Hello.
that, as you may have gathered, was the minor chords, and they wrote to us because they wanted to travel by British Rail to Newcastle. Not just them, lots of other groups as well. Oh, but you should have seen the sky in passing the folks upon the road just as they were standing there were lots of lads and lasses there all with smiling faces booking themselves with British Rail to see the plane races not at all. It was actually to go to a barbershop convention in Newcastle. Mr. Holland wrote to British Rail in September asking them to make arrangements. Then he sat back and waited. But two months went by and the minor chords heard nothing. Just a weary in for you. Two more months went by. All the time I'm and we said, how did you manage to do that? And they said, well, what we actually do is we find somebody who's just about to retire and we, we lean on him. <laughs> and this guy obviously wants to retire with a clean sleep. And so he moved heaven and earth to get us our train. And we got the train. In fact, BR were very good. They put labels on the windows, uh, British Associated Barbershop Singers, convention, all this kind of stuff. And calling it wherever it was. And I can't remember where it was. But it was brilliant. And it, it worked out very well. And if the gentleman from British Rail is watching, the minor chords have one last happy message for him. As far as I know, this is the very first time that that recording has been heard since the original 1974 broadcast. My thanks to Pete Powell, who'd kept it all this time in his garage on a roll of film, a souvenir provided by the BBC. Sadly, there are no celluloid images, only a soundtrack. But with Pete's permission, I've posted a link on the Harmony UK podcast Facebook page if you'd like to hear that item in full. And so, with Barbershop firmly established on British soil, it's perhaps time to ask just what we had imported. And whether Barbershop in the English style, as the Crawley Chordsman sang at the start of this podcast, and with apologies to enthusiasts in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, differed from the American original. Dr Liz Garnet has studied the way that Barbershop was adopted here. A lot of the repertoire that we that we brought over was very much uh, singing in a nostalgic repertoire. There's still a yearniness. Nostalgia is definitely one of the key emotional registers in Barbershop. But we had a different relationship with it because it was kind of more, it was more exoticism for us. We were kind of invoking an exotic Americana. It was evoking a different culture rather than the relate, kind of relationship with one's own past culture. And in 1974, exotic Americana, as it seemed, was certainly popular among a large section of the viewing public. It's the black and white minstrel show. Hey you, are you from Dixie? Yes, 
very recently was that up until 1978 the black and white minstrel show was primetime tv and that was i mean that's you know and, and i had i mean it was 20 years that show was on the air and i i was alive for the last little bit but wasn't aware of it as a child and it was just kind of pointed out to me recently and you go back and you listen that's kind of key repertoire so I, and i kind of always wondered how you know how barbershop got such traction so fast in the early 70s but if that was primetime tv saturday night then the repertoire was, you know, I mean, we think of, you know, you look back and you see what was different to the 70s of the social upheaval and the, and the massive change. But there's the stuff that was like, really, you look back and go, it was desperately old fashioned and, and probably kind of middle England, kind of middle class, uh, middle of the road entertainment. Bob Trot kind of fitted in very squarely with a lot of that. Milk in the dairy, Black and White Minstrel Show was legendary television. With its huge audience of around 14 million viewers, it ruled the weekend schedule for 21 years, from 1957 to 1978. The voice of Eddie Mayer, introducing another of those BBC Timeshift documentaries to be found on YouTube. This one contrasts the popularity of this long-running series with an increasingly unacceptable facet of the show, that many of the performers were white men appearing in blackface. Here from Time Shift is a short excerpt of an interview with Ernest Maxin. In 1974, he was one of the show's producers. We were rehearsing the show in the afternoon and the boys had their black makeup on and in the lunch break they all went up to the stage door, myself included, to get some air and that stage door opened onto a little alleyway and across the other side of the alleyway, which was only about 20 feet, 15 to 20 feet, was a line of black people, the families. They were going into the cinema that was on the other side of this alley where the stage door was. And I saw the way they looked at these black faces and white mouths and their faces somehow dropped and looked in bewilderment. Um, the look went right through me. And I suddenly felt, in my mind, this could have offended them. The look and repertoire came from America's Deep South. American Barbershop shared many of the songs performed by the black and white minstrels. Those songs, especially the ones in praise of Dixie, represented a very white form of nostalgia, with African Americans and their very real oppression under what were known in the South as the Jim Crow laws, parodied by the performers. Meanwhile, genuine African American performers had, at least for the first couple of decades, been excluded by Spebskuza, among the earliest and most notable were a celebrated quartet from New York, the Grand Central Redcaps. When he visited Babs Harmony College in 2018, the arranger and barbershop historian David Wright told me a little more. The Grand Central Redcaps, that were a quartet, was excluded from the society in 1941. They had won the New York City Parks Contest, which had been uh, held in New York City since either the late 20s or early 1930s and uh, uh, they won in front of 15,000 people and they uh, got a huge reception from the New Yorkers. These exclusionary practices which lasted until the 1960s were to say the least deeply unjust, something the modern-day Barbershop Harmony Society is working hard to address. 
David Wright. Those four gentlemen were mentioned by name, and they were given posthumous uh, honorary memberships in the society. And so that was presented in front of everybody at that convention, so thousands of people, plus it went out, uh, you know, uh, it was streamed, so it went out on YouTube. And, and so I believe that people are becoming more and more aware, and I believe our barbershop organizations are becoming more aware of their responsibility to make sure that that situation is rectified. So, when they travelled to the United States in those early days, were British barbershoppers aware of racial discrimination? Jerry Holland. One thing that did strike me was the absence of any, of any African-Americans at all. There were several Asians, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't see any African at all. And, and I used to vaguely wonder about it, but not that much. Dr Liz Garnett says that as recently as the millennium, many people in this country, herself included, were unaware of the discomfort, even the offence that some of those Dixie songs could cause. Again, when I, when I write in the book, I had no idea really that the whole Dixie nostalgia thing is basically a white supremacist project. Um, so, you know, we we, <laughs> we we picked up a whole bunch of, of, of repertoire. We, we might have been objective to the racism, but we still sang all the racist repertoire. From the very beginning, British Barbershop was open to all comers. Even so, the vast majority of those attracted to take up the hobby were white. And on both sides of the Atlantic, the question of how to achieve greater inclusion in clubs and chapters of people from all backgrounds remains a live issue. Barbershop did, however, attract a good many people from other musical genres. in rehearsal rooms across the country. Performers from musical theatre, light opera and more traditional choirs were beginning to take a look at this strange new choral system where the tenors sang above the melody and the baritone filled in the gaps. In some places, women and men were starting new clubs together. The first sing-through of this first barbershop song that we had was in a place called McGill, which is just outside of Liverpool, because we were in a party. And, uh, Bob Kay, who started Liverpool Men's Chorus with me, uh, brought a piece of music along that he'd found, got, when he went up to the convention in Newcastle. Rhiannon Owens-Hall came from the operatic world. She was already an experienced singer, well-versed in music and sight-reading. Rhiannon went on to become the first female director of a British men's chorus. She also helped found the Ladies' Association of British Barbershop Singers, something we'll hear about in our next podcast. But her introduction to barbershop proved to be quite a challenge. It was the hardest piece of music I'd ever seen because I was from, you know, classically trained. So I sang the tenor line and Lawrence Whittle sang the I can't remember which line he sang. I think he probably sang the baritone line. And Bob sang the bass, and a guy called Barry Prescott sang the lead. And we just couldn't make any head and a tail of the song at all. And it was the hardest song ever I'd tried. And that song was The Old Songs. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, what? I know this should be right, but it's not right. It doesn't sound right. We didn't understand what we were doing at all. And so it was really, 
really strange. We had we were sat on the stairs in this party. It was a party. It was a an after show party after um, an operatic society that we've been singing with. So that's how it started. Rhiannon was not perturbed. Before long, she, Bob Kay, and the others were busy founding their own club, their weekly rendezvous, a Liverpool pub. We met, unfortunately, or fortunately for some, in the Pineapple in uh, Liverpool 8. Uh, and the publican, uh, Don Buffle, was one that had the most glorious lead voice, glorious lead voice. And we used to meet upstairs and, uh, you know, that was the way the club was set up. Uh, and it just carried on like that. So, uh, yes, they, they learned the music. Bob wrote out every piece of music on a piece of manuscript. And uh, he taught it if there was a problem and I couldn't make a rehearsal. He taught it to them via the recorder or the ukulele because he had a ukulele band in school uh, in Brack Road, which is where he taught. And, and that's how we, we muddled through. By the autumn of 1974, they were getting on for 500 paid-up British barbershoppers. That advice to gather the new recruits into choruses seemed to be paying off. Dr Liz Garnett can well understand why. You can get this sense of, of feeling connected with people and, and participating and, and being quite outgoing in some ways, but it's structured and you don't have, you know, that I'm, I'm somebody that if my idea of hell would be to go to a, a, a networking event. I could get invited to these arts networking events in Birmingham and I'm thinking can I just go can I just kind of like go hide under a chair or maybe possibly go and just sing with somebody quietly in the corner whereas give me a, the structure of a rehearsal or a performance and I know what I'm doing let's do them and the music gives you the, the to-do list and, and, and you're sorted. But the new organisation had still one more surprise boost to come. Television it seemed hadn't finished with barbershop yet. Barbershopping is the world's greatest hobby. I would never give it up. Barbershop and beer is just what keeps me going. Beer, most of us understand and recognise. For the uninitiated, it's time to learn to recognise the other half that could keep you going. The jazz trumpeter Humphrey Littleton was the man chosen to shine a spotlight on the music and its heritage back in the US. Bob Walker explains. In 1973, the American Convention, the Society Convention, was in Portland, Oregon. And the BBC, for all their faults, they did a most wonderful thing for us. They sent out a team which was run by Humphrey Littleton, who was a producer and director at the BBC at that time, to make a documentary, an hour-long documentary, of the Portland Convention. And Humph being a musician, saw the merits of Barbershop immediately and didn't try and put it down and make jokes about it like, unfortunately, so many people in the media have done. He saw what we were doing. And that was a wonderful program. And it was brought back. And I think in 1974, after Babs had been formed, probably late 74, the program went out and it went out at nine o'clock on a Friday evening and there's hardly better prime time than that. You know, you've got back from work and you've had dinner and you've had a beer and you sit down and turn the television on and there it is. And the BBC announced that anyone interested should get in touch with them. We got in touch with them and all the people who, who showed an interest were funneled through to Crawley and 
At that time, we had, I believe, seven clubs, and within a few months, there were 18 clubs in the country. Now, my memory, I think, is serving me right here, but certainly we more than doubled our membership. You can have mixed feelings about the noise below, but don't be too hard on the woodshed. Anyone who stays up half the night to sing about his mother can't be all bad. One thing I, I would like to say about that programme, it, it was a marvellous programme, it was so well put together, and Humph actually narrated it with his wonderful voice. And one particular thing I remember, they kept cutting to the glitzy uniforms and the contests that were happening and the choruses and the quartets, but they kept going back to the little group of woodshedders and taggers in the basement, singing away down there and teaching this tag. And then they'd go back and show you this big chorus performing. And about the twelfth time they came down to these guys, still trying to sing the same tag or whatever it was, and Humph made this wonderful remark. And he said, he said, well, they're doing their best down there. And, and you have to say that anyone who would stay up until two o'clock in the morning to sing about their mother can't be all bad. And I thought that sums up Barbershop perfectly. By Christmas 1974, British Barbershop was well and truly on its way. But there were plenty of challenges still to come. Growth would bring division. Education would join performance and competition as a key pillar of what it meant to be a barbershopper. And the relationship with American Barbershop was still a work in progress. We'll examine all this and more in the last of our trio of podcasts about the history of British Barbershop. In the meantime, my heartfelt thanks to everyone who spoke to me for this edition. Dr Liz Garnett, Rhiannon Owens-Hall, Bob Walker, Jerry Holland and Pete Powell. To Babs, Pete Powell, Rod Butcher and Graham England for the archive recordings. And of course, a special thanks to you for listening. Till next time, from me, John Beasley. Bye-bye.